让生命历历虚空粉碎也，放心当下。Chan Chronicles. Venerable Master Xuan Hua's life and legacy kept alive through stories told by his senior disciples. In this episode, Reverend Hong Shu explains Master Hua's guideline of no greed, which creates an interesting dynamic tension given America's long history of taking abundance for granted. America.、Um, Had this rich continent to begin with. We had abundant wood, abundant water, fertile soil. We had the Ogallala Aquifer under the High Plains states that turned America into the world's、uh, breadboard. You know, we keep growing corn, we grow soybeans, so much we can throw them away. So, when you come with that kind of blessings, there's no sense, unless you are a moral person, that maybe less is good, and maybe sharing is good. So that was the world that Master Hua discovered in America. So the teaching of no greed was really timely. In fact, generosity and sharing. I'm your host Fabrizio Alberico. Please visit our website dharmaradio.org for more information about these podcasts and the people and organizations that make them possible. Coming to you today from the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery, and this is part two of a series on Master Hua's six guidelines. Today, we're going to be talking about guideline of no greed. Reverend Hung Shur, can you tell us about this particular guideline? Right. The context of what we're discussing is the actual, the actual Dharma teachings that Master Hua gave, specific to North America in the end of the 20th century and on into the 21st century. Looking at、uh, what I guess you'd call them in the Buddhist context, wise expedients, wisdoms, teachings aimed at a specific audience, a time, and a place. So, what are the six guidelines? They arise out of a bigger context called the Mind Ground Dharma Door. That's pure Chinglish. That's Chinese syntax with English words pasted on top. The Chinese original is Xin Di Fa Man, and if we wanted to say what was、uh, here's this Chinese Buddhist teacher coming to America and、uh, using thirty years of his life to bring the Dharma to the West. He's a pioneer. He's plowing ground previously unplowed. He's the first one to take Westerners as his audience. So how does he teach? The Buddha's Dharma, two thousand five hundred years of wisdom's teachings. Well, he does it expediently. An expedient is to the person, to the time, and to the place. Each person different. Each time and place different. So, in nineteen sixty-two, when he arrived to really immerse himself in、uh, Westerners and and their their needs and their ability to understand and their world,、um, he made. The Dharma psychologically sensitive. Psychologically meaning, we in the West,、um, some people call it uh, what uh, the post-Freudian 
time. So we, we understand the century of the self is one way to talk about uh, the 20th century uh, and the 21st century, that we, we understand ourselves in terms of psychological terms. Oh, so-and-so, well, you just have to understand he's, that's just his, the way he thinks. Or he had a complex, or he was, we're, we're all hung up on this and that. Those are, we're looking through a psychological lens. So that being the case, Master Hua said, pay attention to the mind ground. What's the mind ground? It's a metaphor for the mind being like a garden. And the garden of the mind, my mind, your mind, um, is very fertile and will happily grow whatever we plant there. So a skillful Buddhist practitioner, a Buddhist cultivator, regardless of whether he and she meditates or is, does devotional practice or recites mantras or is a karma yogi doing service, doesn't matter. The important thing is what am I planting in my garden of my mind ground? in my mind ground garden. And so he picked out six seeds, six seed thoughts, thought seeds that are particularly important in building uh, samadhi that opens into wisdom. These are technical terms, right? The goal is to plant wisely, to carefully plant. So number two is in Chinese, which is no greed, which we would translate into English as generosity. But he gave it to us in a negative uh, format, so don't do this, meaning greed, treat it like a weed as a gardener in the mind ground. Pluck it up and compost it. Put it back into the compost so it can fertilize wholesome thoughts. So that was the idea. And all six of these guidelines, he kept hammering on them over and over and over again until we were going, yeah, sure, but we've heard about the six guidelines. And he would say, yeah, but you still don't understand them. These are super important. He said, this is what I want you to pay attention to. You doesn't matter whether you are a, some sort of a Chan monster, you know, some person who can cross his legs into full lotus and not move for a day uh, or two days. doesn't matter. What matters is are you skillfully paying attention to what you're planting in your mind? If you're not, I don't care what else you're doing, you're not cultivating the mind ground. You're not on the road to Buddhahood. So that's how important these were. Number two, no greed, flip it over. The positive expression is generosity. Made sense to me. Um, he, he emphasized this so much, largely because he was teaching in America, to a bunch of, you know, college dropout hippies who wound up in San Francisco, myself included. Uh, although I, I uh, did spend years in school, but most of the people who came to Master Hua had been raised in the Vietnam era. The summer of love had happened in San Francisco just a few years before. And so we were desperately searching for something that made sense. And one of the things that uh, was the the uh, reigning ethos that emerged later into the 80s was this idea that greed is good. I think that was an expressed principle of the Reagan presidency, that uh, you, you take the limits off of greed, that the, uh, you know, he who dies with the most toys is the winner. And Wall Street, 
the wolves of Wall Street just consumed uh, the uh, not just the economy, but also the planet around us. And America um, had this rich continent to begin with. We had abundant wood, abundant water, fertile soil. We had the Ogallala Aquifer under the high plains states that turned America into the world's uh, breadboard. You know, we keep growing corn, we grow soybeans, so much we can throw them away. So when you come with that kind of blessings, there's no sense, unless you are a moral person, that maybe less is good and maybe sharing is good. So that was the world that Master Hua discovered in America. So the teaching of no greed was really timely, in fact. Generosity and sharing. So how do you apply it? Well, you simply, as I mentioned, you would say, if you see greed rising, you bring it back to the middle. You ask yourself, how much is need? How much is greed? Do I, am I, is, is the goal some sort of bitter stinginess where you refuse everything and you starve yourself into irrelevance? No, of course not, the middle way. But America, being so consumer-driven, uh, that America is something like, what, one-fortieth of the world's population, but we consume one-fifth of the world's resources, something mm -hmm. like that. That's just unrighteous. It's not righteous. So no greed can be applied personally to allow yourself to become more generous, to share more. But I think more importantly, um, how that teaching enters the world is if I, as a, let's say, a Buddhist practitioner or a spiritual aspirant who's following the Buddha, if I say, right, I would like the religious, spiritual practices that I practice to influence my daily behavior. I'd like to put the sandals out on the pavement, you know, put the rubber out on the road. And, and so if I say, yeah, I try to live in a way that is no greed, that's led by no greed, if I can interpret that in terms of behavior, then it's, I don't steal. That precept, that fundamental Buddhist precept, is much easier to hold if I know that even as thoughts of greed arise, I try to temper them with the middle way. Um, I try to be more generous. So what that means is, if I write it large, is I have a perspective on economics. I have a perspective on the use of natural resources and waste. I have a perspective on the environment. What is my righteous share in terms of carbon sequestration, in terms of the amount of, of plastic that I pump out into the environment? And I can become more responsible for the material that I touch with my life. If my mind is focused on no greed, then I have a sense that what is my proper share in the world of everything? that I touch. Um, if I don't allow greed to take root in my mind and to motivate my behavior, I have an impact on the world. And so my spiritual teachings become relevant. I think that's Master Hua's larger context for these. That, that was the motive behind it. If America really can become, if North America can become world leaders, we can lead in generosity, lead in 
wise stewardship of resources. That's where Buddhists can actually, where Buddhism can transform the culture. Master Hua was a Chan master. These teachings had their root in meditative practice. So he gave them primarily for people to be able to move into their minds and to develop samadhi, this, this stillness, this concentration and purity. So greed is a behavior inspired by desire. Desire is a thought that, as the Buddha described it, uh, kills. You know, why do we die again? It's because desire rises in the mind and moves us out, out of our six senses, out of our own body and mind, into the world around us, thinking that satisfaction is waiting for the, the gratification of desire. And so missing this point, then greed is a behavior. I want mine and yours, more, more, more. So the teaching is given as uh, an understanding of a phenomenon in your own practice, which is how do you desire, how do you deal with desire as it rises? So it's rooted in practice. Um, he taught it from that perspective. Of course, if you miss it and it manifests as, oh, I want that, I a, a BMW is really my, my own share, you know, or two, you know, or a new BMW after last year's has got a scratch in the paint, you know. If that is my standard, then I've totally missed it. I think Master Hua gave it to us to say, look at the mind ground, become a better gardener of the mind ground, and so many of those problems vanish. They simply collapse because you're not out there supporting that pursuit of greed sparked by desire in mind. Is the builder of this house craving is the builder of this house through many a rebirth in samsara wandering I sought but did not find the builder of this house how painful, how sorrowful to be born again and again. Craving is the pillar. I'm curious about what, during your bowing pilgrimage, how did your perception of what greed means change? Personally, um, the bowing was one thing on this pilgrimage, but the silence was, for me personally, more as as important or maybe more important. And I was silent for six years around the, the pilgrimage. And greed for me, they if you translate greed as the result of desire that you missed as it rose, there the classical description of desire is there are five desires, wealth, 
sex, fame, food, and sleep. Those are said to be the, the five desires that push us out into greedy behavior. For me, the, the, the one that that was hinging on was fame. And you could say wanting to be famous. Well, it's more than that. It's wanting to be liked. Or even deeper is just attention. Pay attention to me. I, I want you to notice me. That could be uh, a wish to be liked by your friends or a wish to be famous from the public or from the stage or just having to dominate every interaction that you have with people. So for me, once I started to really uh, appreciate that I was silent, I wasn't going to be talking, my mind went crazy, wanting greedy for attention. And it took, even though my mouth was quiet, it took months of silent bowing to actually let go of the need to be noticed. And so I, uh, Master Hua gave us a practice of writing in journals. And my journals just exploded with all of this, you know, uh, the, the journal pages caught the frustration of wanting to be famous and wanting to be liked and appreciated for how smart I was and how funny I was and all that. And I realized before I started silence, that's had been a major motivation in my life was to, to have you like me because I'm funny. You know, did, was there any truth in the things I was communicating? That was not important. What mattered most was that I'm popular. Desire for fame, right there. So greed for fame, uh, greedy for your attention, was something I'd missed entirely. It didn't connect that that was the opposite of spiritual practice. And so being given the name True and Real, that's my, my monk's name, Guozhan Hangshir, uh, it was, thank you, Master Hua, for seeing how I was outflowing into the world, unaware, thinking it was a virtue to be funny and to be popular and to be liked. Uh, when in fact, once I established that I wanted to, to be, I wanted to, to move into a meditative lifestyle, that this was my biggest obstacle. Oh, house builder, I see you at last. You will build no house anymore. Your rich pole shatters. Your rafters all fall down My mind realizes The unborn And craving comes Craving comes Craving comes To an Advice would you give to people who are um, 
either starting a meditation practice or cultivating a meditation practice in terms of watching that mind ground from the perspective of greed? What does that look like when you're sitting on the cushion, if you will? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's good to have uh, Dharma friends who you can share with to, to find out is what, what you're experiencing anybody else sharing that uh, are you you know does that make sense air out the the inner weather like let people know what's going on listen to dharma talks uh ask questions of ex- more experienced meditators because uh it can get pretty weird in there once you start really uh digging around in your mind ground you can dig up all kinds of stuff and you're supposed to that's normal if you're actually doing the work that the uh, the energy that is not flowing out your eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind during the meditation will start to transform. It'll start to purify. And what you discover is habitual energies rushing up, wanting to, to emerge. And so advice I would give is uh, find wholesome Dharma friends to share with. Listen to to teachings, if you can find a teacher who's talking about the same sort of things you're experiencing. If you're devotional in your practice, let's say you're reciting the Buddha's name or cultivating Guanyin Bodhisattva's great compassion, then it's not as clear because you're simply giving it all to the, to the divinity, to the being that you're admiring. Um, we're talking about Chan, Chan meditation. Because it's such a solitary endeavor, um, it's good to check in to see uh, how those phenomena are, are working. I encourage people to keep a meditation journal by their, by their cushion so that you just write down, today, really hot in the zendo, you know, uh, had dream, this dream came back, you know, or I found my head an earworm, this song wouldn't let me go. I sang this song for two hours of Chan today, you know, and then just write it down close it, come back in a week and take a look or a month later. And if you can see patterns emerge, then you're, you've got the gold. You say, this right, this is where I have habitually been losing my mindfulness. Now I, have a, I can transform that, find the roots of that experience. then how, how does that translate to, so that's an internal seeing or an internal awareness of what is going on. How does one reconcile that with looking outwards at, you know, here we are 30, 40 years later um, after Master Hua introduced these concepts and greed, if anything, is amplifying itself and, you know, polarization is amplifying itself. So how do, how do you reconcile that internal looking and seeing and clarity with the the muddiness of the exterior. Right, right. Well, uh, the one of the key images to my mind was the uh, Earthrise photograph that was fo- that was taken from was it Mariner the Mariner spacecraft? I forget. Uh, one of the early space shots. Uh, uh, an astronaut was on the other side of the moon and took a picture of the planet Earth rising. People will visualize it as I describe it. 
and it's the half Earth rising over the moon. It's called Earthrise, and that was such a a uh, turning point image. We'd never seen the the planet Earth as a closed system. The idea that that's it. There isn't a second Earth. We there is no Plan B. You know, mm-hmm. this is all we have, and uh, it's ours to use or lose. And currently, we don't seem to be. Uh, responding to those realities. The facts seem to matter less these days. Um, So Buddhism and this vision of no greed becomes a a life-saving, life-preserving, life-sustaining message. It's Buddhism's contribution, I think, because we do not honor greed. Um, We had a conference uh, already, gee, I guess it was eight years ago already, at Gethsemane Abbey in Trappist, Kentucky. Gethsemane Abbey is uh, Trappist Benedictine's first Catholic monastery in America. Thomas Merton was was there. And this was Gethsemane IV. Uh, I was the co-organizer along with Father William Skudlarik of St. John's Abbey in Minnesota. It was monasticism and the environment. And what we discovered that was that Catholic monastic orders... Hindu, particularly Vedanta, the Ramakrishna monks, uh, and the Buddhist monastics, male and female, have uh, uniformly the same, have been positive stewards of the planet, largely because nobody honors greed. The idea that we're stewards, that humans share uh, an equal footing with heaven and earth, this is a Chinese view, the heaven, earth, and humanity share this mutual responsibility for balance and harmony. Monastic communities have been doing that for centuries, for millennia, saying, uh, "This I have enough. I'm grateful for what I have. In fact, we can share the blessings, and there's something sacred in doing that. I have enough, I am grateful, share the blessings, hallelujah, may all be fair, may all things flourish, may all awaken, Bodhisattva, I have enough, I am grateful, share the blessings, hallelujah, All things flourish, may all So the, the Buddhist uh, contribution here is huge. If we say greed is not good, greed is actually a poison. The Buddha described it as a poison. Poison is not good. You drink it, you suffer, you get sick, you die. It destroys your life and the things you, you're connected to. So if we see greed as a poison then what's the antidote? The antidote is sharing, is seeing uh, may all be fed. The planet can sustain enough food for everyone's need, but not for everyone's greed. And uh, the those bumper stickers come real, you know, uh, live simply so that others can simply live is, is really true. So I think Buddhism has a, has a contribution. We can lead with this vision that somehow the notion that 
as much as I can take as my rightful share, that's, that's just not true. That's a curse. That concludes this episode of Chan Chronicles. Many thanks go out to the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery and Reverend Hung Shur for their hospitality. Our website, once again, dharmaradio.org, has much more for you to click through. And don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you'll be sure to receive new episodes of Chan Chronicles as soon as they're available. Amitofo. Amitofo.